When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hey everybody, I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. Welcome back to more scripture study. At least I hope you're back for more. Last week was pretty rough as far as the audio is concerned. I apologize for that. Thanks to the generosity and kindness of several of you viewers, I have a new microphone. So cross your fingers and hope that this week goes better. This week we're studying Doctrine and Covenants 3 through 5. Some incredible revelations, two of which revolve around Martin Harris and some of the struggles that he had. And struggles is not a bad thing to talk about because early church history is full of them. In fact, all history is full of them, whether it's political history or economic history or personal history, to be honest. There's no escaping our humanity in this life. And actually, church history is one of my favorite places to study the contrary, to prove the contraries, as Joseph Smith said, between divinity and humanity. To be able to see divine and human fingerprints all over the work of the church. And honestly, I don't think the Lord would have it any other way. Because learning and trying, falling and getting back up, is the best way for us to grow up in God, to borrow a phrase from the Doctrine and Covenants. That truth became crystal clear for me years ago when I was in Tennessee. It was during my divinity school time, and so I would go to other churches as often as I could. I had friends that were studying for the ministry and often would go if they were preaching or just to go to be able to understand those other religions. Now, I remember one Sunday I wanted to go to Catholic Mass. Now, I'd been to Mass before and always enjoyed it, but I'd never been to a Spanish Mass, and I wanted to see what that was like. So I looked for a Spanish-speaking congregation in Nashville, found one, Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, and went to there to La Misa. And then as soon as Mass was done, I went to Spanish sacrament meeting in the Spanish ward in the Nashville stake because I was supposed to be training their young men's presidency as part of my calling in the stake. Now as soon as that was done, I went to my own ward and was able to catch English sacrament meeting with my family. And it was such an interesting, for a religious nerd like me, it was such an interesting day to almost have this case study in, in religious and cultural differences. Because the first and the second meetings were the same culture, but different faiths. And the second and third were the same faith, but different cultures. It was an amazing day. Now, Spanish mass was a, a well-oiled machine it was a beautiful experience. Professional clergy, right? And the choir and, and musicians, and it, it was a beautiful experience. Then going to Spanish sacrament meeting, I mean, it was a comedy of errors, to be honest. I think the priests had forgotten the bread, and so they were scrambling to get the sacrament ready while, while sacrament meeting was beginning. And it must have flustered the priest because when he was giving the prayer, he kept messing up and looking over uh, nervously as the bishop just sadly shook his head and said, no, you got to do it again. And I, I remember thinking at the time, man, what would, what would my, my Catholic friends think if they came to La Reunión Sacramental and thought, who's in charge of this thing? Is, is this really the Lord's kingdom on the earth when it seems to be, you know, grind it till you find it kind of a thing? But it hit me. It happened to be fast and testimony meeting. And it was such an incredible experience. Once the sacrament portion ended and testimonies began, such a powerful spirit flooded into that room as people that I had come to love as a missionary, my, my wonderful Latino brothers and sisters, 
came forward and shared the way that God had shown his hand in their lives. It was powerful. And that's when it hit me. In Spanish Mass, or frankly in pretty much every other church out there, since almost all of them have a professional clergy, what happens in church is beautiful. It's almost flawless. It's professional. So what happens up at the pulpit, professional clergy, I mean, amazing sermons, believe me. You can get a PhD in homiletics, which is the technical term for the, the art and science of preaching. We, we don't have homiletics in church. We don't even call them sermons. We just call them talks. We just get up and talk. That's, that's as good as we got. But it hit me. What happens in the pew is non-participatory for the most part in those other religions. You're a spectator. And it's beautiful what you're spectating. Don't get me wrong. It's very moving experiences. But I'm not, nothing's happening to me directly because I'm not directly involved. Whereas in sacrament meeting, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it, it was so crystal clear that day because of testimony meeting that the space between pulpit and pew kept getting crossed as people would come up to bear their testimony and then go back down. In a larger scale, the same thing happens with callings. As someone is called to come up to the pulpit to preside over a congregation, to, to lead, and then to go back down and join the rest of the members in the pew. So whether it's to come up to testify, or to come up to speak, or to come up to pray, or to come up to lead, it's amazing how often the Lord wants to pull someone out of the pew and get them up at the pulpit, in spite of the fact that that can get pretty messy, non-professionally. Honestly, I think our lay ministry is one of the best kept secrets in the church, but one of the secrets for the success of the church, because it pushes us out in front and helps us grow as a result. Mistakes and all. To put it simplest, what I learned that day is that God cares more about what happens in the pews than what happens at the pulpit. Another way to say that is that God cares more about His people than His programs. I, I'm not trying to diminish the church in any way, but especially as you grapple with the mess, some of the messiness of church history, realize what God is after. It's about the people and not the program. It's about His kids and not His kingdom, since His kingdom consists of His kids. You understand what I'm trying to say here? In fact, a couple of weeks ago in my ward, we have two amazing Gospel Doctrine teachers. And we were starting off our Doctrine and Covenants study. And the teacher asked about how we grapple and how we deal with the messiness of church history. And I was reminded about this verse of Scripture in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. In your own experience, when people talk about the restoration, what are they referring to? I've actually done this with my students before. If you were to write on the board, the restoration of blank blank, how would you fill in those blanks? And almost invariably, it's the restoration of the church, or the restoration of the gospel, or perhaps the restoration of the priesthood. Notice this phrase in section 84, verse 2. Yea, the word of the Lord concerning His church, established in the last days for the restoration of, fill in the blank, His people. Did you catch that? He's establishing His church, but He's trying to restore his people. How do I restore my children to a right relationship with me? How do I restore their understanding of who they are and who I am and how they can return? How do I restore a covenant relationship? Well, he knows exactly how to do that. 
by restoring his church and his gospel and his priesthood. But again, means and ends. All those things, church, the, the structure, the organization, the programs, the history, all of that is means and the ends is you and me. He's trying to restore us. And so he throws us in the mix and says, roll up your sleeves and go for it. If you make mistakes, that's all right. I'm trying to work on you. The reason I say this is because, remember last time, section two is such a beautiful, powerful revelation. It's Moroni quoting his version of Malachi chapter four. Hearts turning to fathers and children, promises of priesthood being planted within us. Amazing. And then we move to section three. And what is that? A scolding, a tongue lashing of Joseph Smith for a major mistake that he and Martin Harris made. And then what's section four? A marvelous work is about to come forth. Uh, this is incredible. The kingdom of God is rolling forth. And then what's chapter 5? Martin Harris struggling with, how do I gain a testament of these things when I haven't seen the plates for myself? It's like, seriously? You've probably heard the saying, two steps forward and one step back. And that's exactly what's happening in these early sections. Section 2, two steps forward. Section 3, a step back. Section 4, two steps forward. Section 5, a step back. And that's okay, because life is that way. Cumulatively, we're still making progress. It's just not flawless. Remember this, whenever you see someone struggling from the pulpit, it no longer bothers me anymore. When people say, a oh, church is boring, it's like, oh. But have you ever been to a, a practice, a rehearsal instead of a recital? It's very different. If you went to the dress rehearsal instead of the actual performance, if you went to practice instead of the game, what's happening? People are improving. They're messing up and they're doing retakes, but they're getting better at something. When I go to other churches, it's the performance and it's beautiful. When I go to meetings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's rehearsal, it's practice, and we're getting better every time we go. It's like the story I've told before that Lawrence C. Dunn told about his dad and his ranch. That he let his sons have pretty free reign on how they were going to run things. And when a well-meaning neighbor talked to the father and said, Your boys are ruining your ranch. They, they don't know what they're doing with the cows. And the father said very clearly, I'm raising boys, not cows. So if you stumble and fumble in your calling, that's okay. It's just practice. Get up and move forward. As we see things today in section 3 and section 5, as Martin Harris is struggling with his own natural man. And Joseph Smith, same thing. Please realize what the Lord is after, the restoration of his people. And in these beautiful sections today, you can start to get a sense of how the Lord is working on that. Now we've seen already, Joseph Smith has the first vision. There's two steps forward. And then three years with nothing. There's a step back. And then the angel Moroni comes. There's two steps forward. And then the next day, as he tries to obtain the plates, he's forbidden. There's one step back. Well, give it four more years of preparation and growth, of practice and rehearsal, and he finally obtains the record. There's two steps forward. And then he begins to translate. We got the 116 pages, and they're lost. That's one huge step back. And that's the context behind section three. Now, a few other historical details. The day after Martin Harris leaves with 116 pages, you, know, you remember the story, right? That he's getting all kinds of opposition at home. His wife is not supportive. This is a prosperous and successful, well-respected farmer in the area, in Palmyra. And so he's got a reputation to uphold. 
And the more I've studied early American history, seriously, reputation meant everything. Democracy meant that your voice mattered. Frontier meant you could always spread and grow and start anew. And the fact that Martin Harris was giving Joseph Smith the time of day at all, remember we saw that at the end of the lesson last week, that we found a friend in a gentleman. Well, that was great news for Joseph Smith, but not so much for Martin Harris as far as what the neighbors and his own wife would think. And so he comes to Joseph and just pleads with him. Can I just at least bring back the manuscript and, and get them off my back? Can I give them some kind of tangible evidence that, that I'm not throwing away my money or my time? That I'm not chasing fairy tales or being duped by some charlatan? Can I please have evidence to give? Joseph prays and the answer came back clearly. No, do not let the manuscript out of your hand. Again, Martin pleads and Joseph asks. And again, the Lord responds negatively. A third time. You parents know exactly how this is, right? And you children, you know, even though if you don't, don't admit it, that if you keep asking long enough, then eventually mom and dad will probably give in. And in many ways, the Lord is the same in terms of age, honoring agency. You're going to do this anyway. So fine. Be my guest and let the consequences come. At least in that, you will learn something. And again, that is what God is always after. In fact, that's the one statement I would add to the two steps forward, one step back. I would simply add, and you can learn in either direction. God can teach you lessons. He can help you grow up in Him, whether through successes or failures. And often, at least from my own experience, I learn more from my failures. I learn more about getting up every time I fall down and have to try harder. And so, like so many of us parents, God ultimately relents. On that third time, Joseph gives Martin the 116 pages of, of handwritten manuscript, but puts him under covenant, only show it to these specific people within your family. And Martin leaves. Now, back to Joseph. One day later, his wife, Emma, gives birth to their first child. I remember that day for my wife and I. Such an incredible, magical day. But for Joseph and Emma, it was heartbreak. Because that child, who they named Alvin, after Joseph's hero, his older brother, died at birth, or was stillborn. And this at a time in early America, where most people took everything as a sign. I mean, rewind a while. And in earlier Puritan times, giving birth to a deformed child, for example, could be evidence that the mother had been practicing witchcraft. I mean, even in the early 19th century, there's still this sense that good things happen to good people and bad things happen only because you've done something wrong. And so for Joseph and Emma to go through this, this heartbreak, are the neighbors taking that as evidence that Joseph's a fraud from start to finish? Or is Joseph himself thinking God is punishing me already for what I've done? It's not just the loss of their son, by the way. Every mother who goes through childbirth is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And in Emma's case, she almost didn't make it to the other side. For weeks, Joseph was nursing her back to health as she was on the brink of this life and the next. Eventually, Emma felt strong enough to at least handle things on her own and recognizing the weight on her husband's shoulders, just pled with him, I'll be okay. I'm out of the woods now. Go back home and find out what's up with Martin. What happened to the 116 pages? Why isn't he coming back with them? And so after a long journey from Harmony, Pennsylvania, back to Palmyra, New York, Joseph learned the devastating news that the 116 pages 
and all the time and labor of translation that went into them were lost. Or as Joseph put it, all is lost, all is lost. What shall I do? I have sinned. It is I who tempted the wrath of God. I should have been satisfied with the first answer which I received from the Lord. For he told me that it was not safe to let the writing go out of my possession. Do you notice all the first person pronouns there? He took full responsibility for this. I knew better. How could I let these manuscript pages out of my hands? His mother said that Joseph went around weeping and grieving like a tender infant. And that sorrow spread throughout the entire Smith family. It really did seem to all of them that all was lost. Now hat in hand and tail between his legs, Joseph Smith eventually trudged his way back to Harmony to be with Emma. And because he had lost the 116 pages, he also lost the privilege of having the plates and the Urim and Thummim. The angel Moroni came and took them both. He repossessed them because Joseph had shown, sadly, that he was unable to protect and preserve them the way he'd been commanded. But after some time and some repentance, the angel Moroni returned and gave Joseph Smith the Urim and Thummim. And through it, he received a revelation, which we now have canonized as section three. And then as soon as the revelation ended, Moroni took the Urim and Thummim back. And what is section three? It's a tongue lashing. I sometimes joked with my students, imagine getting grounded from your cell phone. I know, cruel and unusual punishment. But then, after however much time of suffering and solitude has passed, your, your mom comes and hands you your cell phone back. And you think, ah, oh, finally. But as soon as it's in your hand, it rings. And you answer it, and it's your dad. And your dad says, you're still grounded. And then he hangs up on you, and your mom takes the cell phone back. The only reason Moroni returned the Yerim and for a moment was for Joseph to receive section three, which chewed him out, and then Moroni takes it back. Again, more time and more repentance, and eventually the Yerim and and the plates, the power and gift of God to translate, are restored to him. But he had some time to sit and stew with section three. And to me, one of the great evidences of Joseph Smith's penitence is the fact that he not only accepted this tongue lashing, but canonized it. Think about that for a second. Can our mistakes be part of our own scriptural record? Scripture, the Word of God, His work and Word within us, our mistakes, our transgressions, even our sins, can be redemptive. That doesn't mean that God intended for them to happen. It wasn't His will that the 116 pages be lost. But He knew that they would be. All things, past, present, future, are before his face. And so what does he do 2,400 years earlier? Chapter 9 of 1 Nephi. Nephi, I need you to make a second set of plates for a wise purpose in me. I know it's not going to make any sense to you, and I know engraving in, in metal is a pain, but do it. Someday it'll make sense. Fast forward a thousand years, and as Mormon is assembling the final version of the gold plates, he stumbles across these small plates of Nephi and thinks, well, I've already got the record abridged. The, the, the historical version is already here in the large plates. But man, I really like this. And even though it's redundant, I just have this impression. Something's nudging me. Include it. Stick it on. I, even if they're, they're getting the same story twice. I love the fact that the beginning of the history of the church, church hasn't even organized yet. 
And God is already teaching us something about the humanity-divinity divide. That his divinity is always sufficient to overcome our humanity. My grace is sufficient. That you won't be condemned for your weakness. You can learn from it. I've more than made up for it. So as long as Nephi will follow my promptings in 600 BC, and as long as Mormon will follow my promptings in 400 AD, then you have a chance, Joseph, to try again to follow my promptings now. All things work together for good to them that love God. So said Paul to the Romans. It's one of my favorite verses of Scripture because it promises me that it's all going to work out. That everything together, the two steps forward, and yes, even the one step back, all of it together will work for my good, as long as I love God. And Joseph loved God. The way this revelation was originally introduced, and this was the very first one written down. Remember, section one comes years later, the preface to the Book of Commandments. Section two are the words of Moroni as he's quoting Malachi. Section 3 is the first time that God speaks to Joseph Smith in words that are meant to be recorded. This is the first revelation, and it's a call to repent. There's something so beautifully fitting about that fact. And the way Joseph introduces it on that original manuscript page, July 1828, given to Joseph the seer, after he had lost certain writings, which he had translated by the gift and power of God. No excuses, no passing the blame. I messed up. I lost certain writings that God had given me the gift and power to translate. And just as Joseph begins with no excuses, the Lord begins with no introduction, no salutation, no gentle breaking of the ice. Many later revelations will begin in those kinds of gentle ways. But this first one, God cuts straight to the chase and declares a bold statement of a rule that he lives by, that the works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. And this despite having to work through fallible mortals, honoring their agency all along the way. There seems to be such a note of reassurance there. Joseph, you messed up royally. That scripture is gone. And as we'll see in two weeks in section 10, it's not to be replaced. But I need you to know something. And I need every modern reader of the Doctrine and Covenants to understand this. Every member of the church that is covered with human fingerprints as much as divine. I don't fail or get frustrated in my work. Oh, but what about the 116 pages? Those are lost. We messed it up. But notice again, it's the works, the designs, the purposes of God aren't frustrated. Oh, the programs, the detail of this, that event, oh, that's fine. Mistakes might be made and will be made along the way, but that doesn't change my design. It doesn't change my purpose. It doesn't change my work or my glory, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of you. It's about people, not programs. Or in this case, people, not pages. I can work around that. I already have. I can work around you and your mistakes because it's you that I'm working on. 
and whether I am fashioning and molding you, perfecting you through your successes or through your failures. My work, my design, my purpose has not been frustrated. It is not going to come to naught. In verse 2, he confirms that. God doth not walk in crooked paths. He doesn't turn to the right hand nor to the left. He doesn't vary from that which he hath said. His paths are straight. His course, one eternal round. You really think I can get nudged off course by mere mortals? Why do you think my entire plan revolved around that premortal question? Not what shall I do, but rather whom shall I send? I need a savior to go to earth because my children will be in need of saving. I need someone to condescend, to lower themselves to that lowly level so that then they can offer enough enabling grace to bring everyone back home, to compensate for everyone's catastrophes, to make it possible for me, the Father, to walk in a straight path, one eternal round with my works and designs and purposes never deviating. Even when we get bumped off course, or when we bump the helm and the ship seems to list starboard or port, the Lord can right the wrong. He can fix things. After all, He cares more about the sailors than the ship. Verse 3 makes that crystal clear. Remember, remember that it is not the work of God that is frustrated, but the work of men. And so, Joseph, you were headed in a certain direction, and you wavered. You fell. But my overarching work and glory are so far above the specific things you are trying to do. So worry a little less about your programs and trust a little more in my purposes. Your development can take place just as well through your failure as through your success. Now, if you have that clearly in mind, verse 1, 2, and 3, that I don't fail, that I've got this, and nobody's bumping me off course, then I think you're ready for verse 4 to begin. Now, verse 4, it's interesting how the Lord shifts this rhetorically. He's going to start with a just a vague general noun, a man. It's like, I have this friend, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I hope you know who I'm talking about, Joseph. Oh, he does, believe me. But verse 4, again, the way the Lord leads him into this is fascinating. For although a man may have many revelations, sound like you, Joseph, and have power to do many mighty works, you know who I'm talking about yet? Yet, if he boasts in his own strength, here's the problems, and two, sets at naught the counsels of God, and three, follows after the dictates of his own will and carnal desires, then what's the result? He must fall. There's no way around it. He will incur the vengeance of a just God upon him. And that's what justice demands. If you boast in your own strength, then I have to leave you to it. We saw that so many times last year in the Book of Mormon, when the Nephites thought that they were so much stronger than the Lamanites because, well, we keep beating them in the battles, not recognizing it was the Lord that enabled that. And so boasting in their own strength, they were left to their own strength, and they were just as strong as the Lamanites, man for man. We see the same thing in the story of Samson. It's his covenants that make him different, and that's the source of his strength. Break those covenants, and you are like any other person. 
So you see what Joseph is learning here? You've had the strength to do mighty works, translating all that. You've had the strength to receive revelation, but that strength wasn't yours. And cut yourself off from the power source, and you will be powerless. You set it not my counsel, and all you'll have is your counsel, or even worse, in this case, the counsel of Martin Harris. And what's driving that? His own will, his own desire. Same with you. He cares about what his friends and family think. You care what he thinks. You both need to learn to care only about what I think. Your strength must be enabled and ennobled by mine. Your counsel has to be informed and inspired by my own. Your will needs to submit to the will of God. And your carnal desires must be replaced by spiritual ones. Otherwise, there's no way to avoid falling. Now, in verse 5, we start to see the shift. Verse 4 was a man. In, in spite of the fact he's speaking right at Joseph Smith, there's a, a, a softness, a kindness there. It's almost like Jesus stooping down to the ground and riding in the dirt when the woman taken in adultery is thrown at his feet. This is less confrontational. It's less in your face. But having started there, the Lord now gets much more direct. A second person pronoun. You. Notice how often it comes up in the next few verses. Behold, you have been entrusted with these things. But how strict were your commandments? And remember also the promises which were made to you if you did not transgress them. You see how commandments and promises always come together? Verse 6, Behold how oft you have transgressed the commandments and the laws of God, and have gone on in the persuasions of men. We'll see this when we get to section 82. That when we fall back into sin, then the former sins return. And the Lord is reminding Joseph how many times, how often you have transgressed the commandments and laws of God. Remember that three-year step back after the first vision. You cared too much what other people thought. The persuasions of your jovial company, or in this case, the persuasions of your more respectable friend. And like I said, those persuasions would have been so heavy on Joseph and on Martin. His marriage was on the rocks as his wife Lucy is just pressuring him. Prove to me that you're not wasting our money. Do you have any idea what the neighbors are whispering behind your back? Again, the pressure and persuasions that Joseph Smith is under because of Martin. One of the first people outside his immediate family that actually gave him the time of day, that trusted his story enough to, to offer assistance. So often we fall to peer pressure because we finally have a peer that is willing to be close enough to offer pressure at all. Beggars can't be choosers applies to social situations sometimes too. And just I'll do anything because someone is finally paying attention to me. Martin was 45 years old. Joseph was 22. I just don't want to alienate the one person that is trying to be supportive. In Lucy Mac Smith's words, Martin had come to Joseph's aid when there seemed to be no earthly friend to succor or to sympathize. And I imagine that every one of us can think of experiences that we or others have had of succumbing to someone else's persuasion because they were the only one offering us succor and sympathy to begin with. 
Now, I'm not trying to justify Joseph here, and neither was the Lord. He keeps going. Verse 7, Behold, you should not have feared man more than God. That's the key principle. And Joseph will learn it and teach it repeatedly through his life. Although men set at naught the counsels of God and despise his truths, yet you should have been faithful. See what the Lord is doing there? I don't care how many other people have done this. I know this is a common occurrence, but I'm not asking you to be common. I know this naturally happens, but you have to overcome the natural man. No matter what other people do, you must be faithful. And then here's the promise. Remember we saw it before. Every time there's a commandment, there's a promise attached. That's how covenants work. And in verse 8, if you had been faithful, God would have extended his arm and supported you against all the fiery darts of the adversary. He would have been with you in every time of trouble. Joseph, I know you felt like you had no one with you, no one there to support you, but you had me. I would have been with you. I would have supported you. Why fear man when you can have faith in God? Why fall to human persuasions? when you can rely on divine promises. And it's the fiery darts he'll protect you from. Remember in the armor of God, that's what the adversary is throwing at you. And what's the one thing that will protect you from them? The shield of faith. That's his promise here. You should have been faithful. And no fiery dart would have convinced you to remove the helmet of salvation or the breastplate of righteousness. You would have overcome I know this is so much easier said than done. It's amazing to me, for example, that the, that the moon can completely eclipse the sun if it happens to be in the right spot. And how is that possible when the sun is so much larger, grander than the, this puny little moon? Well, the problem is the moon is so much closer to us than the sun is. And it's the moon's proximity that can make it so persuasive that it can completely block the sun itself because it's simply closer to view. We have to somehow look around, get past the mortals that are so close to us that they might eclipse the power of God. For it is only God that can be with us in every time of trouble. No wonder Joseph eventually said, I made this my rule. When the Lord commands, do it. Do it. That's not Nike. That's Joseph Smith. Do what God commands. Trust in the strength of his arm. Rely on his counsels. Understand his support and his presence will always be with you. If you will keep his commandments, trust in that promise. The Lord then gets as clear as crystal. He starts with a man. He moves to you. And finally, in verse 9, Behold, thou art Joseph, the name I called in the sacred grove, the name Moroni called in that attic bedroom, the name Joseph of Egypt prophesied about and that Nephi recorded in the Book of Mormon. Joseph. Joseph. Do you have any idea who you are and who you must become? You have to fulfill your own divine potential. You have been chosen to do the work of the Lord. 
Because of transgression, if thou art not aware, thou wilt fall. And what is it that can lead to that fall? Transgression and lack of awareness. No wonder the Lord is constantly crying repentance to help us overcome our transgressions. And no wonder he's constantly inviting us to awake and arise, to pay attention, to be aware of what's going on, to pray always that you may come off conqueror, as he'll say in a coming section. You have to be more aware, aware of what you're up against, aware of your own natural weaknesses. Notice, by the way, through all of this, from a man to you to Joseph, I don't know about you, but for me, whenever I read these verses in section 3, I keep thinking, but it was Martin that did it. If it hadn't been Martin, then Joseph, of course, would have kept the 116 pages. I just want to, I want to throw Martin under the bus. And again, Joseph didn't do that in introducing this revelation, and the Lord didn't give him any, any leeway to do it anyway. It reminds me of the angel coming to Alma the Younger and the four sons of Mosiah. But who does he specifically single out? You, Alma. Or how about when Peter, James, and John were asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane? And when Jesus comes to ask why they couldn't watch with him one hour, he only mentions one of them by name. And it was you, Simon. Why couldn't you watch? If I were Alma, I would have been, what about Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni? If I was Peter, I'd be saying, well, but James and John were sleeping too. If it was me as Joseph, I'd be, uh, Martin was the one that made me do it. But no, Martin will have his own tongue lashing in just a moment. Prepare for it. But first and foremost, you were the one that was responsible. Elder Lynn G. Robbins of the Presidency of the Seventy gave an amazing talk a few years ago called Be 100% Responsible. Of course we have to delegate. There's too much of the work of the kingdom to do to do it all yourself. But ultimately, where does the buck stop? And in every level of hierarchy, at every link in the chain of command, every single person needs to be 100% responsible for what is taking place within their sphere of influence, within their stewardship. Joseph is learning that. And there's a lesson we all need to learn as well. Now, as difficult as it would be for Joseph to hear the words in those last few verses, and to hear them coming out of his own mouth, no less, be so interesting. Verse 10, the Lord softens and says to him, But remember, God is merciful. We saw in a previous verse, verse 4, that our own unrighteousness exposes us to the vengeance of a just God. But on the other hand, our repentance opens us to the kindness of a merciful God. Never forget that, Joseph. You, all of us, are standing between those two realities, the justice and the mercy of God. Talk about proving contraries. That is one that God balances perfectly. His justice convinces us that we must repent. And his mercy reassures us that we can repent. Remember that, Joseph, and not just today, because this isn't the last time that you will bump up against my justice and will need to be reassured by my mercy. Remember, God is merciful. Therefore, because that's true, you have a way to change. Repent of that which thou hast done, which is contrary to the commandments which I gave you. 
And guess what? If you'll do that, thou art still chosen and art again called to the work. See what the Lord is doing here? I can't save you in your sins, but I can save you from them. I can't promise you success when you set it not my counsels, but I can give you another chance to implement them. I can't lower the bar to determine what would be a passing grade, but I can allow for a retake. It's amazing how perfectly God balances justice and mercy. You're still called. You're still chosen. Try again. I love that Moroni is returning the Urim and Thummim as, as a, a peace offering, as, as a token of good faith. Receive this revelation and then take it back. Repent. You're still called. You're still chosen. And as that repentance goes on, the plates are returned. The Urim and Thummim are returned. According to Lucy Mack Smith's account, after this period of repentance and contrition on Joseph's part, he said, The angel seemed pleased with me, and he told me that the Lord loved me for my faithfulness and humility. You see, Joseph's faithfulness as he tries to lean in and live in to God's justice, and his humility as he tries to rely on God's mercy, there's always hope. If we will repent, but repent we must. Verse 11, the Lord says, Except thou do this, thou shalt be delivered up and become as other men, and have no more gift. Just like the weakened Nephite armies, just like a weakened Samson, you'll be no different from anyone else. Important principle there. No repentance means no calling, no choosing, no protection, no support, no gifts, no difference. And then in verse 12, he says this, When thou deliverest up that which God had given thee sight and power to translate, thou deliverest up that which was sacred into the hands of a wicked man. Now the Lord here is back to speaking in non-specifics. It's not just 116 pages. It's not just a manuscript. It's something that God has given you sight and power to translate. It's something sacred. And it's not Martin Harris, it's not this gentleman friend, it is a wicked man. I can picture Martin going, whoa, whoa, a wicked man? I think Joseph would be caught off guard by that. I, I, I certainly am. Martin was an, a wonderful man. He simply succumbed to peer pressure. And imagine the amount that he was under. But what's God doing here? He has removed every shade of gray here and spoken as plainly and boldly as he can. That wasn't just paper and ink. That was a sacred record. That wasn't just you sitting at the writing desk, putting in some time. That was you being offered the gift, the sight, the power to translate. That wasn't just a lapse of judgment, Martin, or a simple error made in an effort to keep the peace at home. That was wickedness. And it's wickedness that I'm trying to root out of you. Again, the, the actual mistake is in some ways beside the point. Again, I've already worked it out. I've already more than made up for it. But it's you that has to change. I'll fix the situation, but it's the soul that needs to be changed. And that's something only you can do by recognizing wickedness within you. Don't sugarcoat it. See it for what it is. Like we saw back in section 1, I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. That's bold. That's black and white. 
But what's he say right on the heels of that one? Repent. You can and you must. And what's he saying here? Repent. You can and you must. What was it that made Martin wicked? In many ways, the same things that made Joseph wicked as well. Verse 13, He has set at naught the counsels of God, and has broken the most sacred promises which were made before God, and has depended upon his own judgment and boasted in his own wisdom. You see the parallels between what the Lord says to Joseph in verse 6 and 7, and what he says to Martin in verse 13? Both of you, all of us, have to learn, will we trust the counsel of God? Follow His will. Will we keep our sacred promises with Him? Or will we think we know better? Will we depend on our judgment? Will we boast in our wisdom? Remember, 45-year-old prosperous farmer, well-respected in the neighborhood. He had made a successful living by trusting in his judgment and wisdom. His own understanding of things had served him well throughout life. But there comes a point where our best is insufficient for what the Lord is asking us to do. As he's trying to lift us higher than our own natural strength. Yes, Martin, your judgment and wisdom was enough for you to become a farmer of the soil. But it is not enough for you to become a fisher of men. Admittedly, you had more flesh on your arm in which to place your trust than Joseph did. But both of you need to understand that my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My arm is stronger than yours. So trust me, follow me, obey me, and I will carry you through every time of trouble. Verse 14, this is the reason thou hast lost thy privileges for a season. Both of you, Martin and Joseph, no more work as translator, Joseph. No more work as scribe, Martin. And those were privileges to be able to contribute in any way. But I do love how he ends that verse. Your privileges were lost for a season. Those same privileges or other privileges will still return if you'll repent. I'm so grateful that God never tires of giving us second chances. And I really do believe that they're all second chances chances because as he's washed away all the previous ones it's just the new beginning this is your second now i think i'm on like the, the seven times 70 no no as far as i'm concerned this is number two try again verse 15 still speaking boldly thou hast suffered the counsel of thy director to be trampled upon from the beginning now notice the way the lord said that trampled upon that that's stark language it wasn't ignored it wasn't disregarded. It wasn't second-guessed. It was trampled upon. Nephi uses that same phrase in 1 Nephi 19.7. For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and soul, others set it not, and trample them under their feet. And now, if that's still not bold enough and clear enough, Nephi intensifies it. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They set him at naught, and hearken not to the voice of his counsels. Again, this is the Lord making things as clear as he can. Do you understand what you do when you set at naught my words? They're nothing to you. You are letting them fall to the ground, and you're just walking away. 
But in doing so, you're walking across those words, across that counsel, across me. You have trampled me under your feet. I remember once studying the Last Supper and seeing what Jesus said of Judas, that someone that was eating bread with him would soon lift up the heel against him. And with those words before me, and Nephi's words ringing in my ears, I got a sense that the Lord was speaking of all of us. That whenever I partake of the sacrament, I am eating bread with him. But then what do I do in the intervening week? I set it not his counsel, and in the process I have lifted up the heel against him and trampled him under my feet. I think that's the most haunting thing about Judas, is that he's all of us. And in our neglect of the word, we are trampling the giver of that word under our feet. See the power of the language he's using? That jolts me into an understanding of what I'm really doing here. Trample on the Son of God? I would never. But then again, I do. I do whenever I suffer the counsel of my director to go unobserved. And that title is worth pausing on to. Thy director, that's the word that the Book of Mormon uses for the liahona. Sometimes it's called a compass, sometimes a ball of curious workmanship, but in several places it's simply called the director. Such a great description of the gift God has given them in the liahona. It will guide you through the more fertile parts of the wilderness. It will, head, it will take you to the promised land, but only if you give it three things. These three are repeated often with the liahona also. Your faith, your diligence, and your heed. Joseph, Martin, you and me, will we give our director faith and diligence and heed? If not, then we are trampling him under our feet. Now in spite of that, in spite of our human limitations, our inevitable step back, verse 16, nevertheless, Here's the shift of tone. My work shall go forth. Remember, that's how I began this revelation. Before the condemnation and before the call to repent was the affirmation that I don't lose this game because it's not a game to me. This is my work and my glory and my works and my designs and my purposes cannot be frustrated. My work shall go forth. And what is his work that he's referring to in verse 16? that inasmuch as the knowledge of a Savior has come unto the world through the testimony of the Jews, even so shall the knowledge of a Savior come unto my people. Now he's going to get more specific about who he's referring to in a moment, but pause there and savor what he's saying in verse 16. What's his work? To reassure the world that they have a Savior. Just like I'm doing for you today, Joseph and Martin. That in spite of your mistakes, in spite of this unavoidable feeling that all is lost, that's not true. You have a Savior precisely because you have things you need to be saved from. That was the plan from the very beginning. As we've learned recently in General Conference, repentance is not the backup plan. It is the plan. You have a Savior and my work in restoring my people 
is to restore them to that understanding that you have hope because Jesus came for you. And the world deserves to know that too. That they are still called in spite of their failures. That the Lord wants to be with them in every time of trouble. Now again, who is that knowledge for? For everyone. But I love how specific he gets in verse 17 and 18. In 16, he referred to the Bible, the testimony of the Jews. That way, the knowledge of the Savior can come to the world. And the Bible has done that more than any other book in history. The Bible has let the world know that they have a Savior. But to give them a second witness of that, another testament of Jesus Christ, the Book of Mormon would come forth to the Lord's people. Verse 17, to the Nephites and the Jacobites, and the Josephites, and the Zoramites through the testimony of their fathers. Verse 18, And this testimony shall come to the knowledge of the Lamanites, and the Lemuelites, and the Ishmaelites, who dwindled in unbelief because of the iniquity of their fathers. whom the Lord has suffered to destroy their brethren, the Nephites, because of their iniquities and their abominations. Now that was a pretty quick history lesson on the peoples of the Book of Mormon. And invariably, you and I are content to leave it at Nephites and Lamanites. I love that the Lord drills down deeper into the taxonomy. Yeah, He's got the whole kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. He knows exactly who you are, Joseph, Martin. He can tell a Nephite from a Jacobite or Josephite. He knows the difference between a Lamanite and a Lemuelite or even an Ishmaelite. He knows us all. And whatever branch you happen to be on in this massive family tree, He wants you to know that you have a Savior. That's the knowledge He wants to go forth. That's His work that has to go forth, that nothing can stand in the way of. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ, and the world will know that it is He that has come to save them. That's what the restoration is for. As He hinted in verse 18, so that everyone who has ever dwindled in unbelief, so that everyone who has succumbed to iniquity, whether their own or that of their fathers, anyone guilty of iniquity and abomination, whether it has destroyed your brethren or simply destroyed yourself, you deserve to know that God has sent a Savior. See how he says it in verse 19? For this very purpose the purpose that cannot be frustrated, are these plates preserved, which contain these records, that the promises of the Lord might be fulfilled, which he made to his people. Now you see what the Lord just did there? The same thing that Moroni did at the end of the Book of Mormon. He differentiated between plates and record. You see in 19, the plates were preserved. They're still there. The original source material for the 116 pages is still present. But it's never been about the plates. It's always been about the record. The plates are preserved so the record can come forth. And what's the record about? It's about the promises of the Lord, His covenants, and the fact that He will fulfill them no matter what. That promise, by the way, is still on the record. In fact, it's preserved more beautifully later on in the plates, in these small plates of Nephi. So don't worry about those plates that will end up going unaccounted for. The record will go forth 
proving to all people that God keeps his word. In fact, even the loss of those plates, or to be more exact, the manuscript pages that resulted in translating them, even their loss is an object lesson of sorts to prove the same point, to show that God fulfills his promises, that through a savior, all your wrongs can be made right. Your wrongs, Joseph and Martin, will be made right. I made sure of it in advance. Well, the chapter then ends in verse 20. One more purpose that he's mentioning, the purpose behind these plates, the Book of Mormon, that the Lamanites might come to the knowledge of their fathers and that they might know the promises of the Lord. Now that sounds just like the title page of the Book of Mormon. That this record will come forth so that the remnant of the Lamanites will learn the great things that the Lord hath done for their fathers. And to know the covenants of the Lord, that they are not cast off forever. Joseph, you're not cast off. Martin, you're not cast off. Lamanites, Lemuelites, Ishmaelites, Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites, Jew and Gentile, every child of God, there is hope for us. That is the promise of the Lord. And then verse 20 ends, with that in mind, then they may believe the gospel and rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ and be glorified through faith in his name. And that through their repentance, there it is again, they might be saved. See how verse 20 so beautifully distinguishes between means and ends? The Book of Mormon is means. The 116 pages was means. The programs, the restoration of the church and gospel and priesthood, those are means. The end is the people to restore my people to an understanding that they have a savior, to help them believe in the gospel, the good news, to rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ instead of their own puny arm, their own uninformed counsel, their own persuasions of men, rely upon the merits of Jesus and be glorified. How? Through faith on his name, through repentance. He's teaching them the first principles of the gospel. Unless we think faith is the only one, faith to move forward, only progress, only steps in the right direction. How does he end this chapter? With repentance, to make up for the inevitable steps back. The world will need this message, just like you do, Joseph and Martin. They'll make mistakes just like you have. It's okay. It's part of the plan. And my plan and my purpose will be fulfilled because it's more than my work will go forth. It's my work and my glory, or as he'll say in section four, it's a marvelous work.